So good morning. Glad to see you here. Glad to be here with you. Um, have been greatly looking forward to preaching this sermon. Mostly because I love preaching, but also because this sermon is particularly meaningful to me. So I would like us to pray together <coughs> before we start. Thank you, Father, for your word, and thank you for your faithfulness, and thank you that even after living many years, not like the saints of old, but still, till I'm 65, I could still learn something fresh and new, and I pray that as this sermon progresses, I would be able to give as a gift to this community some of what you've given me. In Jesus' name, amen. I was thinking about this while I was sitting there. So you, you got to know how this process works. I think about this all over, the, like this is like two or three months in the making, this sermon. And I don't cry. I don't cry in my skid steer when I'm thinking about this. And then I, I get more concentrated toward when I have to preach it, where I actually sit in my office and put some things together and look up verses and do some research and all that kind of stuff. And my emotions are totally controllable. No issues. And then I write it down, and still, there are no tears. Now I get up here, and the moment I start talking, I'm getting choked up. And there's parts in this sermon. If I get choked up at the high, <laughs> we're going to have trouble. Anyways, you'll just have to put up with me. Usually something happens, the Lord anoints and... and uh, I get over it. <laughs> but I'm going to start with the sermon title. I've entitled this sermon, The Presence of God, A Theological Primer. And I've done that. The, a, the, a theological primer is key from my perspective. I view this as, um, as a very basic sermon in the sense that Every point that I'm going to make, I could expand and turn it into a, a, a series. Um, but there's kind of a, just a base level that I think could be really helpful as we think about the presence of God. And then, because I'm using the words, the presence of God, and Josh and Nick just finished a series on living in the manifest presence of God, um, you might think that I'm actually trying to correct something sort of in an underhanded way which is completely not the case. Um, if you think you are hearing me trying to correct Josh, you either misunderstood him or you are misunderstanding me. So let me say that really, really clearly, okay? If any of you have any kind of an idea, I hope you saw a little bit of the relationship we have had, have. <laughs> uh, at the beginning, um, I've had lots of, of times over a cup of coffee with Josh, but on this particular issue of the presence of God, um, we were visiting together, and my words to Josh at the end was, I think this is the best conversation we have ever had, you and I. Because there was a real sense that we were coming together and that there was a unity in the Spirit and in our hearts and in our understanding of the Scriptures. Um, so... I'm hoping to, I was just going to get into a little, if you're, if you're a praying person, which I hope you are, you need to pray that I stay on track. <laughs> there are stories in here that I could make it so that all I do is tell stories, and then there's theological points in here that I would love to develop, so have us done in time for the people who are with the children not to crucify me at the end, it's going to be important. Um, so anyways, let me start by saying this. Christianity comes with a worldview. And this church, myself, the elders, Josh and Nick, wants you to have a Christian worldview. But if all you have is a Christian worldview, we are not content. That isn't actually the goal of this church as we answer the call of God to disciple 
all of us in our walk with the Lord. Um, Christianity comes with an ethic. And this church wants you to behave with compassion for the weak, to be a champion for the cause of justice, and to stand up against oppression and to stand for peace in the world. But if all you have is a Christian ethic, we are not content. And we could, I could do a number of these. Christianity is a religion. And so if when you're filling out forms, you need to have um, something to put in the form, whether you're a Hindu or a Muslim or a Buddhist or an atheist or whatever, and you mark down Christianity as your religion, good, we're glad that you do that. But if that's all that you have is Christianity as a religion, then we are not content. So what are we after? The third point of my message fits, in my view, like this, with the series that Josh and Nick graciously gave us. Um, but I'm going to start by reading a passage which I also, also think expresses what Josh was after by preaching that series. And first I have to find First John. I'm going to have to stop using my phone to read my Bible because I'm losing the ability to find things. <laughs> what did you say? It's in the New Testament. Thank you. You know what? You're starting here. Ask any of my children. What happens when you tease dad? <laughs> so, John, writing the first epistle, 1 John, the very first four verses, says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life. All the way up to there, he's talking about Jesus Christ. Our hands have handled, we have looked upon, we have seen. It was from the beginning. If you go to the Gospel of John, that's how he goes. Takes it all the way back to eternity past. Um, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you may have fellowship with us, that's us with the apostles, and indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So then our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. And that's full circle. The elders and the pastors and the leaders of this church, our joy, I put myself in that category sort of, our joy will be complete if you, if all of us, are living in intimate fellowship with the Father and the Son. If we are living in the manifest presence of God, is how Josh would say it. And I would say it, if we are living in the felt presence of God. That every day we have a sense and we know that he is with us and we are with him and we live in communion. All right, we want to invite all of us into fellowship. And I want to use my own experience to illustrate what the Bible teaches about the presence of God. And that's because I had an aha moment that hopefully I'll have time to unpack a little bit. Um, in the middle of May, regarding this fellowship and what that actually looks like. Um, and it answered a question that I have been trying to answer since... I was in seminary, which is, I graduated in 1984, so you do the math. Um, 
I want to use my own experience to illustrate what the Bible teaches about the presence of God. I think this spring was the worst spring of my life. And I'm, I'm fascinated. We prayed together in the, in the meeting room um, where I was also abused a little bit. And, <laughs> and then as Josh and I were walking out, Josh says, oh, I'm so tired. And I said, yeah, me too. I'm just exhausted. And he says, 2022 was an awful year. <laughs> and it was for me, and for Josh and Leah and their family. And I'm sure there's others in here or listening on live stream for whom it was much worse yet than it was for me or for Josh. There, there's hard things, hard things that people go through. Um, so this was one of those years. Not, I look back at lots of years that seem easy and full of brightness and beauty. I, I, I've told people sometimes I have a hard time seeing the curse. It's like I look out and the grass is growing and my cattle are skipping and jumping and everything is, everything is just, you know, go in the house and the kids are laughing, Lynn is loving. The whole deal is just perfect sometimes. And then other times I can barely see anything beautiful and it also looks like the curse. Um, so I lost my brother, who was only a year older than me, very quickly to a battle with cancer. Early spring, I mean, winter, well, yeah, in the winter and in the spring. Um, he got sick in the fall of 21, and he passed away on April 20th of 22. Um, I came through a winter, and then... Spring of blizzard after blizzard. I wish I could remember the stat. I heard it on the radio. Um, average for Winnipeg is like two Colorado lows in a winter, and I think we had 11 last year. And we had more snow than ever, and that's probably mostly meaningless to most of you. Um, but if you have cattle and they're out in the open and you're trying to make them live and be vibrant and thrive, the wind changing from one direction to the other every second day and minus temperatures, and snow upon snow, and then rain upon rain. Um, it's like it becomes a marathon of trying to, of trying to survive. Um, so I had no dry place to calve out 250 cows. Early in my calving season, my calves picked up a scour virus, and just about every one of those baby calves got that virus a week after it was born. Um, they didn't die usually. It took them about three weeks to get over it. Um, but the, comp the virus compromised their immune system, and so then they couldn't fight bacterial infections, and so I ended up with a pink eye thing going through. And I don't know if you can have any sense of what this feels like for a guy who's a real cattle guy, which I am. I have a... If I can make money with cattle, that's a good thing, but that's not actually the point. The point is that I just love the livestock. So if you can imagine what it feels like for me to go in my herd and, and see calves banging into feeders and because they've gone blind with pink eye. And, and it, they usually recover from it, so they're not going to be blind for life, but there's still a long period of time there. Where, and you've got to try to help. Anyways, I, this is where it gets long if I tell you everything, so I won't. So these calves are sick with diarrhea, then they're going blind with pink eye, and now they are dying because at the same time they picked up a lung infection with their low immunities. And the winter weather makes it so that their lungs aren't good enough to survive. Now, that's actually small potatoes. If I lived in the Ukraine, I would be embarrassed to talk about this. I'm actually embarrassed when I think about it. If, 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 if you're in the middle of a war zone, and yeah, what's that like? A whole lot worse than calves dying. A uh, whole lot worse with fighting with things. And, and many of you, diagnosis from the doctor, or marriage relationships where you can't see the light at the end of the tunnel. Can't see how you're going to make it through. You can't see how you're going to make it work. Um, all of those kinds of things are much worse than what I'm talking about. 
my own experience. But going back to my experience, we prayed for healing for my brother when we found out that he was sick. He had hemoglobin numbers that were going in the wrong direction and a swollen spleen. We didn't know what was wrong with him, neither did the doctors. So we prayed that God would heal him, and he didn't. We prayed for the doctors to figure out what was wrong. They couldn't when he had his spleen, so they decided to take his spleen out. Then they cut his spleen into a bunch of sections, figuring that they were going to find it that way. And at the end of all that, they still didn't diagnose him with leukemia, which is what he had. So in February, we still didn't know what was wrong with him. We just knew that he was really sick. We prayed that God would guide the doctors. They didn't figure it out. We prayed for him to strengthen once they figured it out. In, I, forget, I think it was in February that the diagnosis finally came through, and they said his only hope is a stem cell therapy. So he needs a stem cell transplant, but currently he's too sick. He wouldn't survive a stem cell transplant, so on our knees we're praying that he would strengthen enough so that he could survive the stem cell transplant. Good news came down the pike. My brother was a perfect match. I had COVID when they were supposed to test me. I was also willing to give my stem cells. So was my other, were my other two brothers. So there was all kinds of opportunity. There was all kinds of availability. Um, but he didn't get strong enough. And then there's this two kinds of leukemia. I didn't know that. One which is treatable with the stem cell therapy and the other one which just goes too fast and then they, it's fatal. Then we got the news that and it transforms, and we got the news that it transformed. So all the way through, every, essentially every prayer that we prayed did not receive a positive answer, and he died, 65 years old, which I just turned. And yet we felt the presence of God. And I'm hoping that by the end of this sermon, I will be able to give you that gift. Because from where I sit, a huge and important task for a church is to enable its members not to be shipwrecked by tragedy or by tough times. And I'm hoping that by the end, at least I'll have started something or helped something or done something to make that a little better. Uh, <clears throat> so the first point of this theological primer is that God is present everywhere all the time. Oh, by the way, you notice that God answered our prayers this morning because I did not cry in that paragraph. And my emotions were fine. Thank you, Lord. Um, the first point of the theological treatise is that God is present everywhere all the time. So when Josh talks about living in the manifest presence of God, or better, better put it this way, um, I have mused on this very, 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 very many times, often. In fact, this is a regular thing that I think about in my head, because we use the language of we are going to go to church in order to be in the presence of God. And my theological mind says, <clears throat> as if you can get out of the presence of God, you can't wake up outside of the presence of God. You can't go to sleep outside of the presence of God. You can't go to work outside of the presence of God. You can't climb a mountain and get out of the presence of God. You can't go to the depths of the sea and get out of the presence of God. It is simply impossible not to be in the presence of God, biblically. That's kind of cool, eh? And yet, David will say repeatedly, Lord, help me. They're trying to kill me. It's terrible. And yet, I know that I will praise you in your presence when I go to the temple or the tabernacle for him. So there is language all through the Old Testament that we long to be in the presence of God. And there's language that says you can't get out of the presence of God. As the kind of brain I have, I just love that stuff. Hopefully, you don't mind it. Psalm 139, verse 7 to 12. If you've watched The Chosen, and that's not where I got this from, okay? But if you've watched The Chosen, this is a theme verse in The Chosen that, that 
Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. So now he's talking about even more than just God being there. There's a relationship. There's a God is active. Um, if I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. Night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. And there are lots of other verses that teach the same thing, that God is everywhere all the time, omnipresent. Uh, now, when we talk about the presence of God in this fashion, he is invisible. All right? Which, if you take and think about it for a minute, means that your neighbors who are not, don't acknowledge God, live in ignorance of this. They are not aware that they are living in the presence of God. He is invisible. When I think about my experience this spring, I go to, so it was mid-April, I can't remember if it was just before Harv died or just after Harv died. It might have been between the funeral, when he died and the funeral. Um, I had had a calf born a day or two earlier, and when Ronan and I went out to feed, we could see that there was a black lump on the ground and it was prostrate. And I, I often have a, a, a couple of late-term miscarriages. It seems like it happens every year that one or two cows miscarry right in the last month before they were about to give birth. And that thing wasn't moving, and I was totally sure that it wasn't time yet for it to be born. And so I looked and went, we, we fed everything. And then I said to Ron, hey, let's go and have a look and see what, you know, whether that was a bull or a heifer or which cow that was that miscarried. And we went there, and it was breathing. So we grabbed it, and we put it, ran in the house. I, I probably shouldn't tell you this, because it's a bit of a, this shouldn't happen too often as far as Lynn is concerned. But it's in the back room, and we have a big sink, so we fill that hot sink with hot water, and we put the calf in the hot water so that we can get its temperature up, and then it goes from being comatose to um, starting to wag its head and move its legs. And, but you have to hold it for about an hour with its head, otherwise it'll drown in the sink. And after you do all that, you take it out and lay it on the floor and put some heat on And See, I could ma make these stories. You could be here all day. Anyways, <laughs> short story is calving started a couple, maybe a week ahead of this, and it wasn't, there wasn't a dry spot, okay? We'd had more snow than we've ever had, and the only places where cows could calve without their calves dying in that wintering pen was if they found the circle where the hay feeder was on the day before, and they laid in the middle of that circle and made sure that they kept their butt end off the overhang so that the calf wouldn't fall into the slop on the side of the circle, and, and then the calf could live. Um, so it was awful, awful, not a place where you could calve out cows. And I did a whole bunch of stuff with straw and pens and windbreaks to get over those first few weeks when you have one a day. But I knew there's no possible way that I could survive if I didn't get these cows out of here um, before they started calving at a rate of 8 to 10 to 15 a day. I'm telling you way too much. Anyways, between the first calf and when we get to where we moved them and we're calving 14 or 8 or 10 or 15 calves a day. Um, and shortly after, or just while my brother was dying, I drove out with the John Deere, my four-wheel drive tractor, because my skid steer would no longer drive in that pen and neither would my quad, and you could barely walk with rubber boots. Um, and I'm, I'm exhausted and I had been praying, oh Lord, please, I just would like it if there was nothing happening here. And first thing I see 
Dead ahead of me as I'm crossing the fence with my John Deere tractor is a cow with afterbirth hanging out and she's eating by the feeder. There's two guys in here who probably know what that means. That means that, there's, that she's calved, A, and that there's something wrong, otherwise she'd be with her calf. And I can't find her calf. I, that, I see no calf. So I'm panning the thing, the area, and overnight the cows had been by the windbreak and I had put tons of straw there the day before, but there's tons of snow underneath the straw and that was melting because all the cows were on top of it and that turned that into about eight, eight inches of slurry, roughly the consistency of cake batter. And off in the distance I look and there's a calf and all I can see is his head. Everything else is under the slurry. And he's got his head back like this, which is what happens when they have hypothermia. Um, and I went there, of course, and I got no way to deal with it, so I have to take that slimy, manure thing and put it in the cab with me and bring it back home, wipe it off and stick it in the sink. So that's calf number two that's been in the sink. It's ready. Anyways, any neighbor that drove down the road and looked at what was going on in my field, would A, not conclude that God was present, and neither would they conclude that he was for me. It would be like, oh, this guy is in a terrible situation. This is a mess. Um, so the presence of God that is, biblically, he is everywhere present. He is invisible. Unbelievers can easily live without knowing this. And interestingly, he has reason to be absent there should be a theology of the everywhere absence of God. Because in the Garden of Eden, we rejected him. He has no reason to continue to be with us other than his own heart of love. Neither does, anyways, incarnation, the whole story is all completely amazing because now I understand that I just said something that's wrong, just to... If you have trouble with anything I say, Josh agrees with everything I say, so just ask him. Um, there is a reality that there is no that God cannot be everywhere present because He is by nature everywhere. I mean that God cannot be everywhere absent. In other words, God can't make a space where He doesn't exist. Anyways, that's just some thinking that you can do if you want. But he has reason not to be in relationship with us. He has reason to reject us. He has reason to turn his back on the world, and he doesn't do it. So now that's point number one. Point number one, theological primer, was God is present everywhere all the time. Point number two is that God does miracles to make himself obvious. Right? When God wants unbelievers to see him, one of his favorite things to do is to display his power miraculously so that they are, wow, can't explain this apart from God. So the Bible calls those signs. Probably my favorite one although there might be others if I... John chapter 11, the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And I'm not reading the whole story for the sake of time. We'll pick it up at verse 38. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor. For he has been dead four days. And by the way, Jesus knew about it over two days ago. He had the opportunity to rush and get here before there was an odor. But he deliberately stayed away so that Lazarus could rot a little bit. Pardon me, I'm a farmer. That's just how we talk. Um, where am I? It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister... Oh, yeah, thank you. Whoever said 40 was right. <laughs> Is that you, Tyler? 
Thanks. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, and now listen to Jesus' prayer, because this is the reason from Jesus' perspective that he's raising Lazarus from the dead. Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. That's the point. I am raising Lazarus from the dead, or I want you to raise Lazarus from the dead, so that these people who are standing around, the bystanders, will believe that you sent me. When he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Now these people were here not because they wanted to see Jesus. They were here because they had heard of Lazarus' death and they were in support of Mary and Martha in the death of their brother. They were here for a funeral or a wake or whatever you want to call it. They They were not here because they were checking out Jesus. Jesus showed up equally, and they were bystanders, which is part of the reason I love the story. I just love to imagine what it was like to be there. You're there for one reason, and now this guy, and it's a funeral, and he says, come out. And the man who is dead stands up and comes out wrapped in burial cloths, like just Take some time. What would, that, would that shake you up a little if you were a non-believer? You know? <clears throat> now, these miracles that Jesus does are called signs. And if you read John chapter 20, he tells us the purpose of these signs. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book which is probably why the people who wrote the script for The Chosen have all kinds of miracles that we don't see in the Bible, which is good, because that's what it says was true. Um, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Signs point people to God. You will remember that in another story, Jesus talks about the rich man and Lazarus and the the rich Jews um, who are the brothers, or, or the rich man dies. And then Lazarus, again, I'm going to tell you the whole story, and it's going to take too long. But um, in that story, the, the man that's in torment says, please send Lazarus back so that he can tell my brothers that this torment is what's coming. And Jesus says, they already have the Bible. They are not going to believe even if I send Lazarus back. Now, that sounds opposite to this, doesn't it? Here, Jesus is raising Lazarus from the dead so that the people will believe. And to those powerful Jews, he says, even if I send a different Lazarus back, they will not believe. They have the Bible, and they didn't believe the Bible. I'm here before you as a man of privilege, I grew up in a family who was a God-fearing family. I went to Sunday school every day and heard all the Old Testament stories. I've had years of Bible training and spent my years in the Scriptures. If I say to God, I need a sign, what would he say to me? I hope he said, you ding-a-ling. You've been in my word your whole life, and you need a sign? But I'm pretty sure that if there aren't some of you sitting here, there's certainly some of you that sometimes sit here 
and there's certainly going to be some on the live stream, who did not get raised in a Christian family, who don't know whether the Bible is the Word of God or just some weird book, who aren't sure that God exists, have no idea who Jesus is, and are just searching because life is not working and somehow I've got to find an answer. And if I, I think if we say to ask God, please God, give them a sign. I'm pretty sure he might. Well, that's a strong statement of faith, eh? I'm pretty sure he might. Ask Josh. He can do better than that. Um, I think we need more signs in this church. I think we need more miracles in this church. So if you were thinking that this was going to be an anti-miracle message, it's not. Um, but a sign is not the thing. So a sign points people to God. So when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, it makes them think and realize that Jesus is who he says he is. It makes them see that God is real because otherwise the power for this, where did it come from? And the resurrection part of it is a sign that this is what's coming for all of us who are in Christ. We look forward to the resurrection. That's part of it being the sign. It's like, this is the way to the resurrection. Pointing the way. All right? That's what we mean when we say these miracles are signs. So we need more signs in the church, and signs are meant to point people to God, but a sign is not the thing to which it points. Now, I love that kind of language. I bet a lot of you don't. But the sign is not the thing to which it points. So just imagine this. You're driving down the perimeter highway, and you pass under one of those big signs that says, turn this way to go up number seven, or turn that way to go uh, to Brookside. I got that right? Yeah. Um, and imagine if in your heart you thought, boy, wouldn't it be lovely if I could tear that sign down and drive on it? Is that going to work for you? I know this is a really corny illustration, but I thought, wow, this is really good because it's so obvious, it's so absurd that we would tear the sign off of the post and drive our car on it in the hopes of getting to Toulon. It's not going to happen. And Lazarus isn't running around somewhere. He got buried twice. That's a great thing, isn't it, to be buried twice? It is a great thing. But he's still buried. We talk about the kingdom of God as being here and the kingdom of God as being not yet. It's the same deal. The kingdom of God is not here in its fullness and its glory until Jesus returns. In the meantime, we have another language, first fruits. The first fruits of the Holy Spirit. We have tastes, Hebrew says. You have tasted of the things of God. So we get tastes and we get first fruits and we get signs and we get all the stuff that points us to the future, but the real deal is when Jesus comes and evil ends. And there is no more hardship and no more sorrow and no more suffering. No more brothers dying or calves getting trampled in the muck or people getting bombed in the Ukraine or children starving. Marriage is falling apart. Go on and on. You need to expect to live in a cursed world until Jesus comes. And a great deal of what this message is about is expectations, because that's my heart. I have had some moments, one particularly, where my faith was almost shipwrecked by the fact that God did not answer my prayers. And I had him peg that he needed to answer my prayers on biblical grounds. Um, and he didn't. And it was, it was traumatic. It was literally traumatic for me in my faith. And if I could give you a gift, it would be the gift that you don't go through hard things and lose God in the midst of the hard things. Because the point at which you need God most is in the middle of the hard things. Last point, living in the felt presence of God 
requires faith. And I think Josh would say living in the manifest presence of God requires faith. It's one of the cool things in my life. At 65 years old, so I was getting very uptight about the whole business of this listening prayer. Well, that could be a whole nother message. Should I start a whole nother message now? <laughs> and I had a conversation with a young person, I won't say who, where I, I probed this back and forth, back and forth. And it turns out that what that young person meant by listening prayer was exactly what I've been practicing since I was in Bible college, which is seeking God and to know what he wants me to do and to know what sin he wants me to be rid of and essentially to hear from God. But I didn't call it listening prayer. I call that fellowship. For me, if God is going to speak, then it's like it can't be wrong. And all of the people who talk about listening prayer will say, no, no, you have to test it and then talk to other people who have wisdom and you have to read the Bible and test it against that. All of which means that really they're talking fellowship. <laughs> but we can change the language. That's fine with me. It doesn't matter at all. So living in the felt presence of God requires faith. There's a very good thing, Josh. With my reading glasses, I can't see that clock. And without my reading glasses, I can't see that clock. <laughs> All right. If you were listening in point number two, there is a seeing that produces believing. All right? That's what signs are. Where you don't believe and God performs a sign that wakes you up and causes you to pay attention and makes you ask the question, can it be? Is he real? He must be real. All right? So there is a seeing that produces believing. But there also is a believing that produces seeing. All right? And if you've walked with the Lord for a long time and you're in the middle of an awful time, it will be your believing that enables you to see. And so it is that I want you to believe. So we fast forward about a month from the time when I came to the fence with the John Deere, and you need to know that virtually every day was a marathon of work, and I was absolutely physically exhausted going out, finding calves, in the mud, having to throw those calves on my back and walk across a slimy, muddy thing to put them in the maternity pen where there was straw and then to bring the cows in, and it was just <sighs> exhausting. And Rachel Unra came and helped. She was an angel. <laughs> it was absolutely, she has no idea how much she meant to me, I don't think. I've tried to tell her, but only so much you can say. Um, and... Other things happened, so I had all kinds of little moments where God said, I'm still taking care of you, I'm still taking care of you, Ken, I'm still taking care of you, Ken, but he never took it away. He never took away the mud, he never took away the mess, he never took away the virus, he never made it easy, so I was physically exhausted. And then in the middle of May, the forecast came for a storm, and the storm was going to be two inches of rain, I think it was either minus four or plus four at night, with a 60 kilometer an hour wind from the north. And my calves were already in a place where it was mucky and they could barely, they could get around. I had, it, I, had it, I had it covered, that if we didn't get bad weather, they would have been fine. Same time they were fighting a virus. And this happened. So you have a peak week in your calving season. And I had been in that peak week exactly a week ahead of that. So if, if you remember what I told you about viruses, that means that right at this moment when this storm is in the forecast, I've got like 70 calves that are sick with the virus. And I saw that I had about 10 acres across the fence that still was green because I've learned that you've got to try to keep so that you have something to go to if it doesn't work. So I, I moved the whole herd onto that fresh grass. I set up windbreaks. I put some more round bales of straw. I covered that off so that the cows couldn't go into where the calves were. I got my kids out and we herded all those little calves so they, they were in that straw behind the windbreak 
right as the wind picked up and the storm started. And then I went to sleep. And I got up knowing that the storm was awful, wondering what I was going to face. And the short story is that when I went out, I discovered that most of the calves had stayed where they were supposed to, but about two or three dozen of them had gone to be with their moms, and about six of those had gotten trampled in the muck by the feeders. And I was emotionally done, overwhelmed. And I stood by that windbreak and that straw where the rest of the calves were in the middle of an absolute din of cows bawling because their calves were on the straw and they were on the outside of the fence and they couldn't get to their calves and if their calves walked to where the cows were, they got mired in the muck. So they were threatening to die if they went to be with their moms and of course they can't survive without their moms. The moms' udders were totally covered in muck. Makes it so the calves can't smell who mom is. In a day or two, I had three or four calves sucking on one mum while another mum had no calves. It was awful. Not near as bad as the Ukraine, but I was emotionally finished. And in the middle of that, so I've been praying for my whole life, Lord, teach me what it means when people say, don't do it in your own strength. Because everything that I do requires my strength. If I don't pick up the calf, there isn't an angel that picks up the calf and carries it. I have to do it. I, I, when I was in seminary, I was supposed to write a thesis. I'm a very bad person at doing things early. I do everything the day before. But theses are hard to write in one day just before it's due. And I desperately wanted to become a good student who was disciplined, and I would pray that prayer, and it just drove me completely bananas, because, Lord, if I don't actually do this, it doesn't get done. So what does it mean that I don't do this in my own strength? And in the middle of this moment, I'm there, I'm emotionally exhausted, and I couldn't go on, or it felt like I couldn't go on. And I'm praying, and I'm seeking the Lord, and I'm starting to rehearse what I know. Lord, I know that all of creation does your bidding. That what's going on out there is not a surprise to you. And it's not even where the devil is taking control and he's winning for the now. All of creation does your bidding. And all that teaching in the Bible that says... It's not in, in many horses that the king wins the battle. They who, labor, they who build the house labor in vain unless the Lord builds the house. So there's this whole raft of theology in the New Testament and the Old Testament that says, don't trust in the work of your own hands. Your refuge is in God. So I took those things and I said, I started rehearsing them. Lord, I know that all of creation does your bidding. I know that you are with me. I know that I shouldn't be trusting in my own works. And there was a peace that came where the emotional exhaustion disappeared. And all that was left was physical exhaustion. And now I could go out there and put one foot in front of the other and just do the next thing. And we got through it. But the beautiful thing was there was a it was like, now I have, I have an experience where I actually know how walking in the Spirit sets you free from emotional exhaustion. Walking with God actually, it, for me, I actually could not have, bleh, I could not have kept going had I not had that aha moment. So if you're going through something that's, killing you, and you don't know how you're going to do tomorrow, I just want you to know that knowing that God is with you, not, not, I'm not telling you that the curse is going to disappear for you. I'm not telling you that your cancer is going to be miraculously healed or that your marriage is suddenly going to be wonderful or whatever it is that you're up against. I don't know what's going to happen. I know that sometimes the Lord intervenes and 
Sometimes he doesn't. When he doesn't, it's because he's teaching you something. And I think for me it was exactly that. I needed to learn, and he is my discipler. And I lived prior to that in the presence of God, really, without knowing it, because every day was a fellowship. But here I found, I found freedom from emotional exhaustion that I've never... Like, it was so, it was so uh, whatever the word is. Vivid. So, that's what I'm wanting to give you as a gift. You can cultivate an intimacy with God that will sustain you no matter what you face. And you can be close and full of joy and peace. Not because your circumstances are wonderful, but because your God is God, is good, and is with you. Let's pray. Lord, you are precious to me. And in hindsight, as I've looked at myself as the clay and you the potter, in hindsight, I have always seen that you use the gentlest tool. And I thank you that that is true again. That you don't take us through stuff that is arbitrarily awful. But that you have an end goal that is rich and beautiful. And I pray that every, everyone in this room would cultivate a relationship with you. That we may be the people who are called according to your purpose. And be the people who know intimately the meaning of everything works together for good. And we ask you to be our discipler. We want to be in your hands. We desire what you have for us. We want to be free of the temporal things that so quickly hold our hearts. We want to live in intimacy with you and know every day your presence. In Jesus' name, amen.